Welcome to the Reimagining Faith podcast with the Pastors Jackson. This is a podcast for seekers, dreamers, and fellow sojourners who are trying to figure out what it means to be followers of Jesus in the 21st century. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Zach. It's wonderful to be with you again. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, it's also wonderful to be with you. Yeah, you are pretty wonderful. Um, oh, thank you. So, this is a continuation of a series that we've been working on in which we are unpacking our core principles. Maybe not principles. What's the word? Values. values. Yeah, our, the, the, the values that drive our church community at Open Table. And those are? That we are theologically progressive. We are Pottstown-focused, and we have Jesus right at the center of all of it. Yes. Thank you. And we are doing it in that order, unpacking a little bit about what these mean. Now, these are non-exhaustive lists. We could have more than three weeks on what it means to be theologically progressive, but, you know, we're both pastors, and so we do everything in threes. So, <laughs> Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's right. Do all the threes. So first week in our Theologically Progressive, we talked about the Bible, right? Last time we talked about why justice is so important. And today we want to talk about, um, well, I want to talk about one thing that is near and dear to my heart, which is science. And Nicole is here along for the ride. <laughs> to make jokes. <laughs> and I am also here to prove that uh, she has a lot more to add to this conversation than she thinks she does. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so kind of at the heart of a lot of um, my personal faith journey, battle, struggle with church and religion and all of that is having to leave my brain at the door and um, – have a, a mind that thinks scientifically outside of the church and a mind that thinks spiritually in the church and never at the same time. Hmm. So I'm hoping that today we can explain a way that I think scientific inquiry and the scientific method and the scientific mindset actually make us better spiritual beings hmm. and that the scientific mindset and a spiritual mindset are actually the same thing. But first, I'm going to tell you a story, okay? I love stories. I'll take you back to the 1960s, up in good old New Jersey. North Jersey, in the Bell Labs. And back then, Bell, the, the phone company, just had was throwing tons of money around at R&D, like research and development. And they built this funky-looking 20-foot horn-shaped antenna as a part of an experiment in wireless long-distance phone calls. It was a part of NASA's Project Echo. And the way it worked was that it was this super crazy antenna that bounced a signal off a Mylar balloon that was in orbit to a receiver in California hmm. to send a signal wirelessly from New Jersey to California, which, I mean, now is no big deal. But in the 1960s, that was like the first of its kind. Hmm. It was also be prohibitively expensive and went nowhere. You imagine our skies just filled with mylar balloons with uh, signals bouncing off of them and how silly that would look. <laughs> I think it could be adorable. <laughs> so there was just this giant horn-shaped antenna sitting unused. And so a number of researchers asked if, uh, hey, can, 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 can we use this thing? So they were like, yeah, sure, nobody else is using it. So in 1964, um, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson set about calibrating their brand new toy to look up at the stars with it. They wanted to look at the dark spaces between galaxies for stray clouds of hydrogen and whatnot. So the first thing they did, as you would imagine, they tried to calibrate the antenna. It's just like you pick up a guitar, you want to tune it, right? So they tried to calibrate this thing. And they could not get rid of this low static, this low, annoying, persistent static. And it was the same. If it was pointed at the dark sky, there was static. Bright star, static. Straight into New York City, static. So they called the local military base, 
to ask if uh, the radar was on there and jamming it up and no luck. Radiation from a nuclear test, maybe? No, not that they would share that anyway. Faulty wires? No. Um, could it be the pair of morning doves that had made their roost inside of the antenna? No. After a day of scrubbing bird poop and a box of shotgun shells, they tried again and static. They could not, for the life of them, figure out what was wrong until a colleague told them about some controversial experiments in mathematics that were happening down the parkway in Princeton. Um, they were trying to prove this crazy new theory called the Big Bang Theory. Um, see, to that point, the prevailing theory of the universe was that it was static and eternal, that it, things don't move other than, you know, they spin around each other. But the universe is just an eternal, always existing stage on which things exist, that the fabric of the cosmos itself, really, there wasn't much to study. But Edwin Hubble had shown that the universe itself is actually expanding, which I don't I don't even want to go into right now because I don't fully understand. I've read a lot of analogies, but I don't really get it. But the universe itself is expanding. The fabric of space itself is expanding. And so all you have to do is flip the equations in reverse to see that they must have gone down to a single point at one hmm. point. If it's expanding, then, it, you know, just turn it backwards. And if that were the case, if the entire universe were compressed into one tiny little dot that exploded in some unimaginable way in which all of the laws of physics fall apart at that point, um, then it should look like a low, constant, nearly uniform microwave radiation coming from every single inch of the sky. Like looking up from the inside of a chicken egg and just seeing shell all around you in every direction. Hmm. If the Big Bang Theory were true, there should be this radiation everywhere. And so they got together and realized, wow, your observations, they fit my equations. And these equations, they fit your observations. We've just independently discovered a baby picture of the universe. They had accidentally taken a photo of the universe when it was 380,000 years old, which is about the time that we, as far back as we could see, because physics didn't make sense before that, um, which is the equivalent of a, a newborn child at 17 hours old. So imagine those first pictures that you see on Facebook of a newborn baby. That's how young this picture of the universe is. Um, I should leave a link to a picture in the show notes because it's not at all an astounding picture. <laughs> it's just kind of like bumpy red colors. <laughs> <laughs> but when you know what it is, it is just awe-inspiring. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this picture represents one of the greatest discoveries of all time. Um, we went from talking about what the early universe might have looked like to measuring what it was almost overnight. Um, it was an incredible day for scientists and a horrifying day for religious fundamentalists who were still at this point, a hundred years later, trying to disprove Darwin. Um, at first, lots of religious folks, um, we, uh, we lost the comfort of geocentrism, you know, that the earth is the center of the universe and that it's the most important thing in the world and God made it special and everything else circles around it. <laughs> and with Copernicus and all them, we discovered that, oh no, we're not the center. We're not even all that unique or special. And so I think that was a hit to our ego. <laughs> and then we had to deal with evolution and the fact that we as a species aren't very special either. And now scientists found the universe's 13 billion year old baby picture and the spaces where God used to live we're quickly getting smaller and smaller. And I think this is where most of the friction has occurred between science and religion, or more, more accurately between um, people who trust science and people who put their trust primarily in... Uh, it's mostly Christians. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Most other religions don't seem to have a problem with this, but um, Christians who take the Bible literally 
hmm. really had a hard time dealing with this. Um, and I think this is because when you use God to explain all the things that you don't understand, you are setting God up to one day disappear. Hmm. Like that is a system that you create that will kill God. Hmm. God is like a placeholder for mystery at that point. Um, I mean, there was a time in the ancient world people believed that God was responsible for just about everything, you know, crop yields and fertility, kings, outcomes of wars. I think by the time the Enlightenment, 17th, 18th centuries, God was primarily just responsible for the cosmic and biological origins, right? That God made the universe, God made people, and then walked away and let it all go. But then in the 1960s, by that point, it was just like, all right, so the universe created itself and it developed on its own and life developed on its own and what's left for God? How, where, where are the mystery places left where God can live? And by then it was just ethics and social order, mm. right? And we all know in the 1960s, you had to belong to a church in order to be seen as a respectable member of community. Right. Um, in parts of New England, you couldn't even run for public office unless you were a member of a church. Mm. But that didn't last. We kind of realized religious folks don't have a great track record when it comes to morality <laughs> and running things responsibly. And non-religious people can do a pretty good job, too, of morality and not being terrible. Um, so then God starts to shrivel away even further and even further. And if I'm thinking now, like the only gap left where God could possibly live if if you're in this sort of thinking that God lives in the places we don't understand is like, well, what happened before the Big Bang? Hmm. What, uh, what happened then? That must have been God. Can't be anything else. It has to be God. But like, what a wimpy faith. Yeah, I don't really want it to be like, couldn't have been anything else. Guess we'll call it God. Feels lazy. Right? So God was responsible for something 13.8 billion years ago. And then that's it. That's all that's left. <laughs> and if we ever discover what happened before the Big Bang, then what? We, we've kind of made a system where God disappears. Like an imaginary friend. And the kid doesn't need it anymore. Now that that kid can, you know, make it through school on their own. They don't need their imaginary friend anymore. So they disappear. Hmm. So God is like Puff the Magic Dragon. At that point, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I have really bleak. the energy or the desire to worship Puff the Magic Dragon. Just, I'm not into that. No. <laughs> so I think this is where most of most of the seeming perceived conflict stands between the growing field of knowledge that science offers us and the shrinking spaces where God can still fit. Um, but I think what is at the heart of that for us religious folks is misunderstanding essentially what science is. Because hmm. I hear people say, I, I, I'm not a science person. I don't know science. I'm, I'm, I'm whatever. And what they mean usually by that is I have not memorized a body of knowledge about a given subject. Hmm. Right? Like I'm not a science person means... I don't know all of the species of ants or how gravity works or things like that. You know, like um, science is a bunch of books and encyclopedias, but it's, it's not. Science is a method of better understanding the universe. It is a worldview. It's a mindset. Hmm. It is a way of living and thinking that starts with a love of questions and a disdain for answers. Hmm. Which, is that the way that you normally think about science or the way that science is perceived or talked about? As a love of questions and a disdain for answers? No. <laughs> How do you think science is usually talked about? How things work. I think. Like just a, we understand how things work and that is just as they are. We've kind of 
replaced the priests for scientists, like as the holders of divine knowledge. Well, how like the natural world, how the natural world works. So how it's ordered, how it's, how it functions. Not really a science person. Yeah. (laughs) And I think you, you, you might actually be, but we just don't call it that. Um, because you're a lover of questions. That's true. And you're somebody who strongly dislikes easy answers. Also true. That makes you a scientist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> By my definition, anyway. Um, we got to see this on full display um, in the first year of the pandemic. Right. We're used to, like I said, thinking of scientists as the new priests who just have all the answers. Hmm. Um, When in reality, scientists are trying to prove each other wrong all the time. Hmm. When they come up with a theory, their theory has to be able to be proved wrong. And they're usually the first people in line to try to prove themselves wrong. And then Hmm. they bring their theory to their peers and all their peers look at it and they try to prove it wrong. And then they run other studies to try to prove it wrong. And when they prove it wrong, everyone rejoices hmm. because then they have more interesting questions and they're hmm. one step closer to finding something that, you know, maybe not even finding the truth, but finding a better model that hmm. helps us understand the truth. There's a wonderful book by Dr. Stuart Feinstein called Failure, Why Science is So Successful. <laughs> he has a TED Talk too that's definitely worth watching. And he says, questions are more relevant than answers. Questions are bigger than answers. One good question can give rise to several layers of answers, can inspire decades-long searches for solutions, can generate whole new fields of inquiry, and can prompt changes in entrenched thinking. Answers, on the other hand, often end the process. Hmm. Right? Can you resonate with that? Mm-hmm. On like a spiritual level, too? Yeah. Have you been in like a... Bible study or a small group discussion or some kind of spiritual deal when you ask some deep questions, somebody gives like one of those shutdown answers? Yeah, we like to do that a lot because it is, it is harder to say that you don't know. I think when you see yourself as the expert, so it's not, that's not how we think. That's not how the churches I have belonged to, primarily my upbringing, would have functioned, mm-hmm. would have. Uh, if you ask questions, if you questioned the thing that they said was true, then your spiritual life was to be questioned, not your, not the thing they were talking about. Yeah. So, like, questions are bad unless you believe the answers that are given. But yet, if you never ask good questions, you'll never un- uncover bad answers, right? So if there's an mm-hmm. answer in there that doesn't work, that's not actually a good answer, that maybe is a mistake, you'll never know because you're not allowed to an- ask the questions. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how science works. That's the engine. Failure is the engine of science, and it's celebrated. Mm-hmm. The problem is the most people don't see that. Most people just see the result. Like five, ten years down the road of this process of constant failure and revision. And then scientists hand us an answer to something. Mm. Here's a cure for leprosy. Here is a new understanding of the way that stars form. Here is what we know about anthropocentric climate change. Mm. Right? We don't get to see behind the scenes. And so in the early days of the pandemic, you remember... They were like, is this an airborne disease? We don't know. Hmm. So everyone needs to spray everything down with Lysol, wear gloves, wear masks, um, wipe everything down. And then we realized, oh, no, it's not actually being transferred via droplets. It's being like, so Lysol is not doing anything. You don't have to clean that. Uh, Fauci went back and forth a few times about the efficacy of masking. And what kinds of masks and trying to balance like public health concerns with emerging science, with communication. And there were a few times he got it wrong and had made policies based on what they thought was true 
And then new science came out and said it wasn't true. And so they did what scientists do, and they revised their suggestions and their hypotheses to be a little bit more true. But the public wasn't used to that. The public was used to scientists being the new priests who you can't question, who are always right, who have divine knowledge that they'll never get because they didn't go to grad school. Hmm. And what happened was that the faith in science just plummeted. Hmm. And people were like, this is all political. They're making it up. They don't know any better than us. So, you know, we're going to, I don't know, take horse medicine, you know, because what does it matter? Because they know as much as we do. They're making it up and they're all controlled by whatever political boogeyman you have. Hmm. But in reality, they were just doing what they always do. We've just never seen it before. So I don't envy the guy. No. That poor Fauci. Not at all. He needs to retire somewhere like on an island away from people for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where I see the connection between a scientific worldview and a spiritual worldview. is one that values questions over answers and the corrective power of community. Hmm. So let's say you and I were reading scripture and I come up with a novel understanding of something. You know, I say, wow, I'm reading this thing and it's talking about the afterlife. And I'm convinced now that God is a Labrador retriever and um, we should worship God as dog, right? Charlie had that idea, our seven-year-old, because dog is God backwards. And so he said that God's a dog. And, uh, you know, why not? In this post-truth world where we can question anything, my belief is just as good as yours. So, like, all right, whatever. I'm going to be a dog worshiper. But that only works if you're, like, in seclusion with, like, right. just you. Sure. No one can give you a side eye. Right. You get every – go ahead. You you can believe whatever you want. But the moment you bring that to a, an interpretive community, people who are doing this thing with you, I feel like somebody's going to question that. <laughs> and they're going to push back on that. And they're going to ask, like, what? where did that come from? I'm not sure that's true. And that idea won't last. Because it's dying community. Hmm. Um, so a community of peers who are all on this journey together is like the corrective force to asking questions. So in science, there are certain ways we can know things, usually through observation of things. You can look at things. You can, uh, you know, listen for things. You can touch things and taste things and you can make observations and then perform experiments and then write down what happened and um, this is a way that we better know the universe. Um, how are ways that we can better know God or the divine, the ineffable, the, uh, the great ground of being? How, what are the ways that spiritual people um, do that same thing? for getting to know God. Okay, I'll let you think about it and I'll jump in. Um, <clears throat> I think you had mentioned a few episodes ago that we generally um, rely on, you know, what John Wesley called his little quadrilateral, the tradition scripture, reason, and experience as ways of knowing the unknowable, of coming up with truths about that which we can't actually make truths about, coming up with theories about that which is beyond our theories, um, about naming the unnameable, right? That these are the ways that we that we get there. Um, personally, uh, I've had times in my life where I have leaned more heavily on one or the other. 
You know, when I was younger, it was it was all about scripture. It was all about the stories of the Bible and the the tradition that I was handed, right? The the theology of my church. Um, as I was questioning my faith, it became all about reason and thinking through everything. Um, but I just, at this point, I, I've come to think that faith is experienced first. Like, I don't think I was reasoned into a faith in God. I don't think that somebody handing me their tradition would have convinced me any more than it's convinced me to become a Scientologist. Um, but it was the the kind of experience of God that changed me as a person. And that continual experience that continues to form and change me as a spiritual person, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is there is there one of those four that that you lean more heavily on? Yeah, I think this uh, very similarly that the Bible was I think where I first understood God, but I don't think that I can divorce that from the community in which I was learning the Bible from through people who like especially as a child, like you learn by watching, you don't learn by um, what people tell you Hmm. often. Hmm. So like I learned that my pastor was a good man because he was a good man, not because he (laughs) said, I'm a good man. Believe me here. Like it, it was definitely an experience and community, um, of people trying to understand this book and trying to figure out how to live in a way that was consistent with that. Um, it's a good way to figure out if a person is actually a good man, so yeah. whether or not they tell you they are. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> correct. Um, but I think, you know, I, I, th- I think that's still the way that that I learn um, very much by experience, very much by, I guess in some ways, like tradition helps you um, start the idea process and it helps you to see how people have done it in the past and seeing what resonates and, and what doesn't resonate. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong or right, it just means it doesn't resonate um, experientially. So... I, I feel like I know God when I feel God. Mm-hmm. Um, I know God when um, when the path is opened, whether that's a question or um, a way of being or a direction, when things just make sense, mm-hmm. um, when they, and not make, not necessarily like intellectually, but like, in my spirit, it makes sense. Um, there's like a knowing that I might not be able to um, express otherwise. And I think the the way that I most understand God is through the person of Jesus. And so, which is not at all a surprise that <laughs> I would know God by knowing people, but... Um, <laughs> I think that's maybe why the person of Jesus is so compelling to me um, is because he like lived and taught the same thing. He called people to do really hard things by doing really hard things and also by saying them. Mm. Um, He asked hard questions of people who were trying to trap him with questions. He um, told stories rather than giving just facts there was an engagement uh, and that's kind of how I see I see God and faith as a lived experience really um, that's informed by writings and theories and teachings but um, I guess as an experiential learner like that that really resonates with me a lot more than a book. 
The book's really good. I mean, it's a really, really good book. Um, and I, I think... The Bible? Yes. Um, and I... Yeah, I would say it's my favorite book. But... Um, Suck up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> God loves me the best. Um, I think that... Like, when I see it as a story more than, like, a book of facts or a book of, like history um that is unquestioned but a really a book about a book it that that sounds so simplistic but it's it's mm. this literature that like showcases specific people experiencing god mm. and and trying to live in tandem with that god and the 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 details of that are not as important as much as the experience um, resonates with me. A desire to know, a desire to authentically being committed to this this God. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, our traditions, and I think about our traditions these days as like more conversation partners. Yeah, because it's not like when I say traditions, I don't mean like the last 39 years because that's as long as I've been alive, right? Like and I don't necessarily even just mean like the two or three generations before me. Like I mean like my Jewish brothers and sisters for a very long time. <laughs> right? Like it like if Jesus was a Jew, like he was in conversation with his tradition and 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 those the 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 specific tradition that he found him in found himself in was in conversation with generations before. So like it it's not it's not static. it's mm-hmm. it's something that, yeah, that's a really good, I would say, in conversation with. And I almost feel like not in conversation with doctrine that is divorced from individuals. Mm -hmm. Like when we say tradition, we think about just a set of rules and ways of doing things and ways of saying things and ceremonies and all that. But I don't mean that when I think of tradition, I mean of like uh, actual people who wrote things who believed things, who struggled with things, who lived through tragedies and who came out the other side. Like that's what I mean when I say when I when I'm in conversation with tradition, I mean, you know, me and Julian of Norwich are hanging out right now and from her 12th century um anchorite the little room connected to the cathedral. Right. Even though she's been dead for 800 years. Well, and 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 I would say too like the looking at something from the scriptures, the 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 holy scriptures of the tradition, the experience, the the traditions itself, um, and and reason like just because I have them doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means we're using all of the tools we can to understand and to know. Um, Because I would much rather know God than, like, understand things about them. Yes. Now, that is a great distinction. Um, Because I wonder what our listeners think of when they hear the phrase, know God. Hmm. Are you imagining knowing God as that you know a certain set of facts about God. You know that your Bible inside and out and all the Bible verses and all the things that Jesus said. You know all the right ways to believe about what Jesus' divinity and humanity mean and all the Greek words that were used to describe how Christ is the Logos that is eternally descending from the Father and the Spirit Mm -hmm. is eternally being begotten. Like, Does that what most people think of when they think, to know God, like I know God well. I think probably. I think that that's how we disqualify ourselves by thinking we don't know enough information, right? Like to to think that we're not worthy until we have all the answers. 
But I think a knowing is is like the personhood, not not the like I know the person of my spouse. I don't just know that you like science and that you like the Bible and that you really like the Phillies and that you can play the guitar. Like that stuff is something that like anybody could know if they spend time with you. But I think like it, it's very relational. Knowing is very re- relational to me. Um, and so um, I don't want to just know about what my boys like to do. I want to know like what is it about that thing that really lights them up and and how can I experience that with them even if it doesn't light me up. Yeah. Like they light me up. Um, but one of the nice things about doing church with you is that we don't always need to communicate what we need in the moment of leading a service hmm. where if we need to go off script, it seems that all we need to do is look at one another hmm. and give and just think really hard about the thing we're trying to say and the way our faces move, the other person can understand yeah. what needs to be done and then do it. Yeah. And that kind of knowing that does not come from studying facts about you. Hmm. Or even if I were to take hours and hours of footage of your face and you responding to different things and try to analyze it with AI and all of that, I still, that is not the same kind of knowing Mm-mm. that I think we can know of God. Right? And, I, and I think that that is maybe why, why I would call myself a progressive Christian is because I'm not looking for the right answer. Like I'm looking for in this time, in this space, what is the most, well, I hesitate to use the word right because that's not what I'm trying to say, but like, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to see what's the most godlike thing here yeah. and how can I, how can I get on board with that and how can I emulate that? Um, and sometimes that's like a huge challenge, right? Sometimes that is like, oh yeah, I think I think God and I probably have some agreement here, you know, but um, more often than not, it pushes me to to go beyond my own goodness, my right. own, you know, right decision making. Um, so I, 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 you know, I want I don't I don't want to do the rote thing like I want to do the most faithful thing. And, and what that is. I get clues from tradition and I get clues from scriptures, but I think my faith is much more full of nuance and mystery now Mm. than it was in the past. You used the word mystery, my favorite word. (laughs) (laughs) There's a medieval mystic textbook written by an unknown author called The Cloud of Unknowing. That pretty much anyone who was into mysticism in the Middle Ages would have read and studied. Um, And in it, the unknown author says, quote, God is incomprehensible to the intellect. Even the angels know him by loving him. Nobody's mind is powerful enough to grasp who God is. We can only know him by experiencing his love. Or hers. Or theirs. Or theirs, yeah. And well, I, I think right there, right? God is incomprehensible to the to the intellect. The intellect is how we like, where we like to sit, where we like to live, where we think in our society is the highest form of knowing, is the intellectual knowing, right? The fact knowing, the ones that can be written on in books and transcribed and and people can understand. The uh, that kind of knowing we think is the top dog knowing, and every other kind of knowing, the relational knowing, all that kind of stuff, that's secondary knowing. But the first is the intellectual knowing, mm. right? That's where we get stuck saying God is a man. In fact, you know, even in Genesis, God makes Adam and Eve and makes them in our image. Right? Mm. God is using plural pronouns, <laughs> plural. Uh, gender-neutral pronouns to create humanity. And like, that's wonderful. But when we're up in the intellectual way of knowing God, 
that then becomes a stumbling block. Mm -hmm. But if your faith is based on finding the right answer, then that's going to be a problem, those sorts of things. But if your faith is about finding better questions and being able to continually question things that don't work anymore, and then uncovering newer and better questions into the unknown, into the eternally unfolding unknowing of God, this is great. <laughs> well, and even like using gendered pronouns for God, like I think that the facts stop me from knowing God more, hmm. right? So like if I say God is a man, like I can know God is a man um, and whatever understanding of gender that I have. Um, but then if I, if even somebody else asks the question, like could, could God also be female? Um, instead of seeing that as a, a widening of who God is. I see that as a threat yeah. to who God is. And so um, when I when I look at, I don't want to say that there are no facts to be known about God um, because there's probably some, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and the moment I start trying to list some, the, the moment we say, actually, <laughs> actually that might not also be true. Um, but I, I think... Well, what I do know is that that God is loving, um, and but I know that like it's not a provable fact. Mm -hmm. um, it's very experiential. It's very um, something that you can see. Um, yeah, I think if you ask any scientist who's honest about their field. How much of what there is to know do you think you know in your field? Hmm. So, like, ask a biologist. How much of biology do you think is understood right now? Ask an astronomer. How much of the universe do you think we understand? And they will all, I would imagine, without question, tell you almost nothing. Hmm. Like, we know almost nothing about the universe. If you think about all that we have learned and all that we know equals almost nothing. And the things that we know might turn out to be wrong. Um, and that'll be fine. And I mean, maybe not that'll be fine, but like it will be fine, even it, if I have to wrestle with it. In like, science, it'll be great. It'll be so exciting because these kind of big paradigm shifts, I mean, they get pushback because they should get pushback when you're trying to change a long-established fact you get pushback, right? Einstein got a lot of pushback when he when he was like, hey, you remember that Isaac Newton guy? Maybe he didn't know everything. And there was not big fans in the scientific community. People tried to prove him wrong and they couldn't because he was right. Hmm. And like there was an outcry, but there should be because we're in this interpretive community who's helping us to all get closer to a truth. Hmm. And then not too long after, there were, you know, Niels Bohr and the quantum physicists were like, hey, Einstein, this is pretty great. It works really well in big scales. Small scales, doesn't work at all. Quantum physics is weird. And he's like, I don't buy any of that stuff. And they don't agree. And they fight about it. Turns out they're both true. <laughs> but they're both not true. They're both incomplete. Um, George Box, the mathematician, said that all models are wrong, but some are helpful. <laughs> and like, yeah, these are helpful. These work. We can just use Newton's laws and laws alone to launch a rocket into space. I'd say that's a successful theory, even if it's incomplete and mm. not totally true. Oh, you mean like the Trinity? Oh, yes. <laughs> the Trinity is super helpful as a model mm -hmm. in understanding how uh, I think the, at the heart of the Trinitarian theology is that God is essentially relationship. That God doesn't have relationships, God is relationship. That is a fundamental part of God's being, and that's very helpful. Now, where we get into trouble is saying, well, God has to be Father, or God has to be Son. God can only exist in three. Now we're, now we're moving into saying that we can know something that we can't truly know. Or even by saying that the Trinity is easy to understand. Oh, goodness. Like, I, I, 
Like, can you be a Christian if you don't fully understand the Trinity? If not, none of us. Like, well, I don't know if I said that right, but like, I think, you know, if you ask me to explain the Trinity, like how many days do you have? Right. Because it's a very. It's three persons, one substance. I mean, don't you read the creeds? Right. It's easy to understand. Right. Which which is like. <laughs> like uh, and, and then and then to like find out that like none of the. um, None of our examples of that particular relationship check out entirely. So like. There, there's untruth that you could find in that and and get lost in that. Like, and I know some like theologians really love that. They mm-hmm. love that whole like turning things around and doing it. Like, unfortunately, it does not interest me. And <laughs> I like if it's when I find it to be helpful, like it's helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was something my dad challenged me on when I was in seminary, and I was getting all uppity about theology and questioning everything and fighting with everything and um, was really in that reason stage of my faith. Um, I remember one time I was fighting him about something on the phone. I remember pacing in the hallway of Palmer um, down by the library, and he said, hey, Zach, I'm wondering, if how does this help you to love God and love people? <laughs> and I like had to think about it. And then I couldn't really come up with something that was honest. And I had to kind of admit that I had not considered that. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, that's always where I return. With whatever I'm contemplating, with whatever I'm working through in my private prayer life and journaling, at the end of the day, will this exploration help me to love God and love people more? If no, I need to find a way for it too, because that has to be at the heart of everything or else... There's right. no point. If it, yeah. Yeah. That's a really good rule of thumb. Yeah. So this is why since then I have been so compelled by the mystical tradition because pretty much mystics of all stripes, you know, going back to the early church up until today and really across most religious traditions as well, they will say, God is ultimately unknowable. Hmm. However, I'm going to try. Because, you know, like the book of Ecclesiastes says, eternity is written on the hearts of humans, but not the mind to understand it. That there is a kind of deep intuitive knowing that comes um, through, and usually through also some pretty intense intellectual stimulation and debate and learning and reading and studying Um, That's not to discount the intellect at all, but that there is a sort of deep mystical knowing that I find so much more compelling. Hmm. And I find it so much closer to God, and I find it so much closer to the attitude that I find when talking to scientists about the field that they're into, Hmm. how interested they are in the mystery, and how in love they are with the questions they have. Hmm. Um, There was a study in 2015, in which researchers took 777 participants, so you know it's going to be spiritual. (laughs) And they asked them to describe in detail their most memorable spiritual or religious experience. Um, But in uh, in the process of categorizing these people, they asked them if they had ever claimed to have a mystical experience of, of God at one point. So, have you had a mystical experience of God? Yes, on one side, no on the other. The people didn't know they were being split up like that. That's kind of important. And then they asked them to describe in detail a their most memorable spiritual experience. And then the researchers took those written descriptions, put them into a computer, and created a word map to mm-hmm. find common words or phrases. And I'm going to bring it up and show it to you. I've read it already. The top one are the people who have had mystical experiences, and the bottom one are people who have not. You want to read, like, the big ones on the mystical side? That's the top one? Yeah. It's everything, oneness, and world, deeper, connected, 
using Unity. It's not a big one, but marijuana is in there, and I just need to make sure that that's said. <laughs> so is LSD. Yeah. Um, every first into really. All right. So now the people who have never had a mystical experience. Pastor, marriage, Christ, Christian, said, monk, cross, Lord, evening, him, for, wife, Jesus, prayed, said. So you can feel the difference, right? Yeah. The people on the bottom, all of their words have to do with religious institutions or marital relationships. Hmm. They're, it seems anyway, a lot of their experience of the divine is wrapped up in their in their religion, in their religious experience, in their church, in their cathedral, in their whatever. Um, you've got monks, and there's identifying names like Christ and God, Christian. It's a much more rigid. Whereas the people who have claimed to have a more mystical experience of God, something that uh, is is just an experience of the divine that that is beyond words, hmm. when they talk about spirituality, it's a unitive experience. Hmm. It's about being one. It's about being inclusive about everything. It's you can imagine. It's it's just a lot more open. And a lot more loving. And there's there's actually a lot of research to back that up. Mm. That when people, especially those who have practiced meditation um, in all kinds of traditions, when they have these what they call unitive experiences, where they feel like they've left their body and left their ego and left their self and they've become united with the universe, they've become one with all things, they feel this connection to the divine ground of being that they can't explain but they can only feel. They've done brain scans of people in those states, and they have found that um, there's a lot more production of oxytocin and dopamine. The parts of spatial awareness shut off. There's parts of the brain that that are active that are not usually active in these sorts of experiences. And when you have an experience that doesn't get there, but gets partially there, you tend to then come back and be a lot more... Uh, tribalistic, hmm. a lot more about our experience of our God, hmm. whereas those who have experienced the transcendence tend to not care so much about borders anymore. Hmm. And there's a unity between denominations, between religions. There's there's almost like we've tapped into the groundwater now, the source of all things. And any attempt to explain it's going to make you sound like you need to be medicated. Hmm. <laughs> So most people don't. <laughs> well, I feel like I, I I look at those lists and I I feel like both inform. Mm -hmm. Like both, like like Christ is not in that first one, and that is really part that's really important to me. Like that is really central to how I know God. Um, and when I say I know, I mean like knowing. And like while the stories about him, like knowing what he did isn't what changes everything for me, it certainly is part of what changes everything for me, right? Like, so I feel like we don't have to turn off our brains in order to know and love God. We don't have to turn off the the mystical or the spiritual or the the sensory part of ourselves in order to to know God either. Um you know, the is it the Shema that the love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, like with your whole being love the Lord your God. Um, yeah. And we do that by loving God and loving people. Like the, the like that's how Jesus summed it up. Mm -hmm. um, it's fascinating to, to see the, uh, 
this, the fMRI scans of <clears throat> nuns when they're meditating, and they claim to then have reached this state of oneness, the, um, their visual cortex is active. Hmm. The, monk, the, the nuns are. But then Buddhist monks, when they claim to have reached that state, their visual cortex is completely dead. But the part of their brain that would light up during um, communication, speaking, that part is alive. They both experience the same unitive consciousness. They get there in different ways because the nuns are meditating on the image of Christ. And so they're visually meditating. The Buddhist is trying to empty themselves of everything. So they're using their mantras and their words and everything to get there. Hmm. And they both end up there, right. at least right. on the scans, they both end up there and they get there separately. Hmm. And so I, I I like that because I know for you, um, getting there through Jesus, through the person of Jesus, the relationship with a physical, fleshy human, is that's, that's your sweet spot. That's how to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's a lot more abstract than that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think there there is a lot that is abstra- abstract for me, and I think there's a lot more that's specific for you. Like, a, it, yeah. it's it's but, not one or the other. Like, it's, it's yeah. Like, it's, I can dwell on tree roots and <laughs> end up end up in in God, you know? right? And I'm sure I could do that too, maybe. Absolutely. No, you're you're hella spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Super godly. Mm-hmm. So, in conclusion, my theory is that a good scientist loves questions, hates easy answers, is even disappointed by good answers that have dead ends. Hmm acknowledges that they themselves and their field will never know a fraction of the truth about how the universe works, Mm. but understands the value of what they do have Mm. and is driven to add more drops of water into the ocean, (laughs) right? Mm. And likewise, a healthy spirituality embraces the questions and the unknowing because we acknowledge an eternal God and our mortal beings that cannot possibly contain the truth of the truth. Mm. We get shadows of the truth. We get analogies of the truth, but we don't have the truth. And we acknowledge that and that we know that our best descriptions, our most true descriptions of God are only going to be a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the truth. And yet we continue pushing into the mystery like a spelunker going blind into a cave <laughs> because we have to. Mm. And both of those drives, both of the love of mystery, both of the disdain of certainty, I think have the same heart. And so... In myself, science and religion are not opposed to each other. They are, uh, they come from the same place. Hmm. They have the same motivation. One is just the way I plumb the depths of the physical, and one is the way I plumb the depths of the metaphysical. Hmm. You know, it's, it's just, uh, uh, who was it, the Sir William Bragg that said that, um, Sometimes people ask if religion and science are not opposed to one another. They are, in the sense that the thumb and the fingers of my hand are opposed to one another. It is an opposition by which anything can be grasped. Hmm. And so I hope I have convinced somebody to uh, that you are actually a scientist <laughs> at heart. And that these two can live together and that your questions are welcomed and they are beautiful and they are the fertile ground on which our faith can be built. Amen. <laughs> and next week 
we move out of theological progressiveness and we move into what it means to be Pottstown focused. Now, we've had questions from people asking if they can join our church if they're not from here. We did a whole episode on that. Um, we wonder what it means to live in the community where we serve, what it means to come in and join efforts that are happening instead of assuming that we are the saviors hmm. who will bring our wisdom and resources in. Um, we ask what it means to plant roots as a church and as a disparate body who some live here and some don't, some moved here, some grew up here. How do we respect those forces of nature that hmm. live here already and are already working and moving? And we've got a couple of real specific examples and hopefully some really interesting conversations with some movers and shakers in the next couple of weeks. So we look forward to exploring those depths with you when those times come.